Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. Okay, this is amazing. I am so excited to announce that with this episode, we have hit a new milestone, and that is 300 episodes of the VentureFizz podcast. Did you know that my first interview was published five years ago? So I am blown away to reach this milestone. Starting a podcast is not necessarily hard, but keeping up with it is certainly one of the trickiest parts. I believe that the key criteria for a successful, long-standing podcast is that the host needs to be genuinely interested in the topic that is being discussed. It goes without saying that I am fascinated by the journey of building startups, and I consider myself to be incredibly fortunate to have the opportunity to interview so many amazing entrepreneurs and investors. I want to thank them all for taking the time to share their stories and advice with our audience. So for episode 300, I couldn't think of a better guest than Diane Hessen, entrepreneur, investor, board member, and columnist. Diane has accomplished so much throughout her career, and during this interview, she shares so many great stories from each step along the way, including building Communispace, now called C-Space, which was the first company to leverage social media for consumer insights. We had a lot of ground to cover, so we discuss a lot, including Diane's background story growing up in Pennsylvania and why she completed her undergrad at Tufts in three years, plus the story of her very unique application to Harvard Business School, her career path as a brand manager for General Foods and later rising through the ranks at the Forum Corporation, the full story of Communispace and how the company pivoted and disrupted the market research industry, which led to an acquisition, authoring a book and becoming a nationally recognized expert on the American voter, serving on the board of directors at companies like Panera Bread, Bright Cove, Eastern Bank, and others, what it's like giving a commencement address, saying yes, and the importance of serendipity, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. As you know, this is episode 300. This means we have quite the library of interviews with entrepreneurs and investors in the tech industry. I interview legends like Diane who are widely successful, but I also interview first-time founders as I like to provide insights and advice for entrepreneurs at different stages. So if you haven't explored our full catalog, you can go to venturefizz.com slash podcast to explore the full library, or you can also go to any of the major streaming players like Spotify, Apple, Google Play, SoundCloud, and others to explore all the different episodes. I hope you find these interviews useful as there are so many great lessons learned. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Diane. Diane, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here, Keith. I'm so excited. I feel like this conversation is long overdue for at least the VentureFizz podcast. I know you've been on other podcasts, but I'm like, I need to have Diane on my podcast. So uh, I'm really um, excited to talk to you because the Communispace story is just an amazing one, very inspirational. Um, but before we get into your background story and everything that you've built as far as all the great activities in the Boston tech scene and beyond, um, I did want to talk about something that I was kind of thinking about as I was preparing for this conversation. And Communispace, back when that started, you know, this was, if I'm not wrong, like 1999, 2000 timeframe. It was really focused around content, commerce, and community around the web. And when I was thinking, I'm like, the it's 2023. C's. Yeah, the three Cs. So it's uh, many, many years later, we're 2023, yet those are three things that are still very core and very relevant. So I just thought that was interesting how you know the web is still focused on those core pieces. I guess if you just take content, for instance, I mean, in, in 2000, what they were saying about content was just think 
um, you will no longer need an encyclopedia because all of the information on the web will be at your fingertips. And mm -hmm. so I guess what we talked about in 2000 when it came to content is what the internet would replace. You know, I mean, it was, so first it was replacement. You don't need a dictionary anymore. You don't need an encyclopedia anymore. And then um, there was a long period when I think it was about, the web was about redesigning content. And this was much later, but I remember once seeing a prototype of what an ESPN website would look like. I know you and I are both sports fans. Yeah. And it had it had blocks. It was in squares. And it had video and headlines and color and incredible photos. And I had never seen anything like that. But that was kind of phase two. Like the content was reinvented with the web, you know, in ways that were never even possible before. And, you know, of course, now it's, there are all new ways of creating and distributing content. And I don't know, maybe that's what will happen with AI. Like right now we're looking at AI as what it replaces, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you don't do your term paper anymore. AI <laughs> will do your term paper for you. And then right. at some yeah. point, We'll think about how it redesigns things, how it enables us to do things that are just dramatically better than anything else. So, you know, AI supplementing the real world and creating something new. But, you know, then it, at some point it will be the thing. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, there are all those stages. Yeah. And when I think about like, because community i i remember it was about a couple of years ago and people were like you need a community strategy just because you saw mm -hmm. certain companies that thrived around building communities for a b2b model not mm -hmm. just b2c so it's just interesting that that you know community content and commerce is never going to be things that disappear they'll just be evolution of how they uh you know operate on the web yeah and we'll argue over which one is more important Right. <laughs> exactly. So, well, let's, uh, let's rewind the clock. So where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? Where did I grow up? I grew up in Norristown, Pennsylvania, which is about 20 miles Northwest of Philadelphia. Um, people always, Norristown was a steel town. People always called it the wrong side of the tracks. Um, although we always laugh because the only town that was worse than Norristown was Conshohocken, which was right next door. And now Norristown is still pretty gritty, but Conshohocken is young. It's hip. Um, it's hip. And hip um, yep. with beautiful little shops and everything. And my parents used to say, if you don't work hard, you can end up in Conshohocken. And that actually probably <laughs> would have been a good thing. Um, my dad uh, uh, was a sewing machine repairman. And um, my mom was the secretary uh, in the library of our junior high school. Um, you know, I always, I always kind of loved being engaged with everything. I mean, I was a good student. I, I think now in retrospect, I feel like maybe my motivation was, I just wanted to leave Norristown and have a better life than my parents had and everything. Um, I was always involved in a lot of things, you know, sports, activities, you know, all of that. Um, I think my experience growing up in Norristown, I'm not trying to make it sound like it was this really difficult, sad thing. I mean, we didn't have a lot. You know, we had cereal for dinner a lot. Um, I would say, oh, I hear there's this thing called camp during the summer. My mom would 
point to our, you know, 10 foot by 10 foot backyard and go, that's camp. That's but camp. But I will tell you that I had a really <laughs> happy childhood. Yeah. And it's helped me um, in the 25 years or so that I was an entrepreneur. It really helped because, you know, you always say when you have difficult times, what's the worst thing that could happen? What's mm -hmm. the worst thing that could happen? And for me, my worst case scenario was that I'd be back in Norristown, you know, and I'd be a barista. And that would have been okay for me um, because, you know, growing up was a lot of fun. So having that kind of childhood made me fear less. It made me way more able to take risks just because, you know, my worst case scenario was a lot better than, you know, many people in this world. So how'd you end up at Tufts? You know, I read an article that said that there were more colleges and universities in Boston than anywhere else. And uh, my dad and I got into his pickup truck and we drove to Boston and I went all over the place looking at schools. And when I went to Tufts, I just thought that it was such a beautiful campus. And I went on to the roof of the library, which now is way more beautiful than it was then. But I went onto the roof of the library in this, you know, kind of bucolic setting. And in the distance was the city of Boston. I thought, oh my gosh, if I come here, right? I get to be on this beautiful campus and yet I get to see the excitement uh, of this wonderful city at the same time. And I think that trip to the library roof just kind of did it for me. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, you know, here I am many, many years later and, you know, I still really love the place. So yeah, it was great. Awesome. And obviously, as you can imagine, it completely changed my life. Yeah, that's amazing, amazing school. And then, and then you pursued your MBA at HBS right after, right? I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah I was 20 when I went into HBS. Wow. Um, part of it was, you know, I had a lot of financial aid for college. And the way they did it in those days was you had government aid and they gave you four years of aid no matter what you did. And so I figured out that if I finished Tufts in three years and then kept going, I'd get a whole year of financial aid mm -hmm. um, to kind of get me, you know, into graduate school. So I used to write on my business school applications, you know, don't defer me. Like deferring was one thing if you were young, because I have to use this year. I'm going, you know, where somebody will actually take me. And, you know, it's weird, Keith. I, um, so here's what I think happened, how I got in at age 20. I wrote my application in calligraphy. And you did. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, my grades were good, my boards were good and everything, but I wasn't yeah. like, I mean, I don't think I was the most spectacular candidate in the world, but my application was gorgeous. And so I just had this, I had this vision that what happened is the whole committee was all together and they made their decision about who was in the class and I wasn't in it. And then as they were walking out the door, somebody said, let's take that calligrapher. And uh, that's what I think happened. I should probably go check it out. There's got to be some reason that it's documented somewhere over um, at HBS. But, you know, I think that's what happened. So, it's, it's, um, it's hanging up in the admissions office somewhere where they're like, remember that student that wrote their application? Right, what happened to her? Wait, wait, <laughs> we need more students like that. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, funny. you know, again, when we were talking about risk stuff, you know, I went there at age 20 and there were a lot of things I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know a lot about the stock market. I didn't understand what it was like for the Dow to hit a thousand, which it did while I was there. But 
again, the risk there was not so great. So many people in my class, you know, were married with families and gave up jobs to come there. So the mm -hmm. risk of going was so high for me. You know, I just moved from my dorm in Medford, you know, to my dorm in Alston. And uh, right. I think it made things easier because I had a clear head and I wasn't freaking out over, you know, what would happen if I, you know, if I didn't crack the case. All right. So how'd you get your career started? Um, oh, you know, I fumbled around a lot. I really never, I didn't have a lot of guidance, but I was just, I don't even think it was related to guidance. I think I'm just one of those people that never really knew what I wanted to do. I had a younger brother who was super clear, you know, got a plastic black doctor kit when he was two years old and decided he wanted to be a surgeon then and never really changed his trajectory. And for me, I never knew. I never knew what I wanted to major in. I never knew what I wanted to be when I grew up. So I just kind of hopped around. Uh, I hopped around to different things. Um, after business school, I did a stint at General Foods because I liked marketing. I thought that consumer goods was great. Um, I didn't know what product I wanted to work on. I said, give me anything as long as I understand the product. Uh, they said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, don't give me decaffeinated coffee because I don't get decaffeinated coffee. Like, why would anybody want to, you know, drink something that tastes awful if it doesn't deliver the primary benefit? And in their infinite wisdom, they put me on rim decaffeinated coffee. And it was the beginning of uh, my journey into, you know, one of my big life's passions, which is helping to understand people who are very different from me. And, um, you know, so I loved it there. I moved back to Boston um, for a guy and um, uh, didn't really have a job when I got here. Uh, there's a long story that I won't bore you with. I had a job offer at Gillette, but the guy uh, who hired me withdrew the offer uh, when he uh, had a second conversation with me and his boss. The boss said to me, Diane, you know, what's your biggest trepidation about taking this job? And I said, well, you know, none other than the usual in consumer packaged goods. Like why, you know, spend 60 hours a week marketing soft and dry deodorant. But other than that, <laughs> I'm excited about working for Gillette. And he didn't laugh the way you're laughing. He withdrew right. the job offer. So yeah. I went into consulting, which is what you do when you lose your job. And I did that for about three years you know, then spent a significant amount of time in a company that I love called the Forum Corporation, which was uh, designing and developing management and sales and customer service training programs for industry. And it was a great introduction uh, for me to B2B businesses and selling and marketing intangibles and the incredible power of what happens when you sit in a room for three days and you know, learn how to build skills, whether it's learning how to sell better or manage better or whatever. It was a really fun business in those days. And we grew really fast and I had lots of different jobs there. And, um, you know, that was, a again, another really transformational experience. Just loved being in that business and, you know, working with a lot of fun people and kind of honing my skills as a manager. You know, I was chief marketing officer. I was head of sales. I did a big international stint. I um, did strategic alliances. I started a new business division. I mean, I had lots and lots of, you know, when a company is growing, 
uh, it's great because your job is not to say, what's my next step? Your job is to say, can I even keep up? Can I, can I do my current job in a company that's twice the size? And uh, I just build a lot of great skills then, um, just kind of in preparation for doing my own thing. Well, and I think that's important. I think it's, you know, it's, it's inspirational for a lot of people that, wow, because I think, you know, according to LinkedIn, you were at that company for 19 years? Yeah, 18. 18. Yeah. 19. So, so it, yeah, was it was a good, amazing. yeah, it was a pillar of your foundation. Mm -hmm. uh, I think some people that would love to take the entrepreneurial leap, it's hard to do that, right? Like, you know, it's a risk, you know, what if it doesn't work out? Yet, yeah. You know, what led you down the path of being like, okay, I'm going to go start my own thing. And, and how'd you come up with the idea? Yeah. I mean, the, the big turning point for me was I told you I had all these jobs and I did really well. And I moved to, uh, you know, into uh, very senior management. I was one of the top three or four people in the company. And my boss, who was probably the best mentor I've ever had in my life and whose every word I hung on one day, uh, I had my performance review and he had hinted to the company that he might step aside and become chairman and put somebody else in the CEO seat. So of course I practiced for hours the night before. And at the end of what was a really great performance review, I looked at him and I said, you know, John, I'm not trying to kick you out, but if you decide you want to become chairman, I think I would be a great next CEO. So there's silence. And uh, he said to me, Diane, someday you are going to be a great CEO, but right now you're a work in progress. And Keith, I was heartbroken, right? Mm. I mean, here, I thought it was a great idea. And I started to obsess over that because I told you, I never really knew what I wanted to do. And all of a sudden, what became clear to me was that I was really ready to lead an organization, you know, that I wanted to, right. I wanted to be a CEO. And I thought I had the, the skills and the tools and the ability to do that. So I started saying to my friends, you know, let's get out of here. Like, let's build the kind of company we always wanted to work in. And, you know, they'd all say, oh, Diane, you know, if you ever do that, you should let me know because I would totally come with you. But they didn't have my dream. And mm -hmm. so the reason I became an entrepreneur was not that I, I mean, it was not that I had a great idea. It was because I wanted to be a CEO and entrepreneurship was the fastest path for me to do that. And of course, I didn't want to be a CEO of a three or four person company. I wanted to be the CEO of a large company, you know, with hundreds and hundreds of people all over the world, because that's what I loved being a part of um, in this other job. So I wanted to be a CEO. And my incentive to scale the business was I wanted to be able to walk around and see lots of people and, you know, inspire others and really build an institution that mattered. I used to call it making a dent in the universe. So, you know, some of my friends, that's not why they become entrepreneurs. They have an idea, they build an app, they sell it to PayPal. Right. Have another idea. They build an app, you know, they sell it to Twitter or whatever. I mean, that was not me. You know, the idea of building something and flipping it and the, the turn on there is the idea of just be able, being able to create massive value really quickly with your own skills. And I think that's a great motivation. It just wasn't mine. I just wanted to lead something big. And I obsessed over that until, you know, it kind of happened. 
So how'd you come up with that original idea for Communa Space? Well, my original idea was different. You know, we were talking about the three C's. So my original idea was um, the community in 2000 was uh, really, um, you know, if anybody who's listening to this, who's, you know, age 30 or over probably had the exact same first experience with community, at least if you live in the U.S., which is that you had an AOL account and we had chat rooms and we had instant messaging. And I was fascinated by this notion of leveraging the web by being by the whole notion of being able to have conversations with other people. And I, there were not a lot of applications of community in a B2B setting. There was a lot of tennis.com and all of those things. So we decided to leverage community so that people within corporations could have conversations with each other, you know, kind of an early version of, I don't know. Slack. This is Slack. Slack, anything like that. That's what we were building, but we were building communities um, of people all over the world and they were allowed to have discussions and send each other documents and, you know, do all of that. We were very excited about it. I didn't know a lot about how to write software, but I knew a lot at that point about how to sell. We got a bunch of great big names um, like Sara Lee and like Chase Manhattan Bank in the beginning and our clients loved our idea um, I closed a bunch of deals for pilots. We raised 10 million in venture capital based on all of that. And we were off and running. And uh, we had, there were other people who were trying to do the same thing. It was called collaborative software at the time. We just couldn't figure out how to, I mean, people would come into the community, um, but it was mostly, the communities were mostly dead. I mean, people just didn't see it as a critical part of their jobs at the time. and we landed, we basically pivoted. I mean, I was at, um, I was at a client's in Kansas City, Hallmark, the greeting card company. And the client was about to launch a, um, an online community of all of their store managers so that they could all share ideas with each other. I guess kind of like Slack, you know, let's figure out how we help each other merchandise better, you know, improve the, um, improve the quality of our stores, improve the profitability, et cetera. And we were excited about it. The client looked at me and said, Diane, I love what you guys are doing, but I'm just worried nobody's going to come into this community. And fortunately, you know, I was, I wasn't 25 years old at the time. So I didn't, you know, I, I had been through a lot of those sorts of situations. I just looked at him and said, you know, I'm worried nobody's going to come into the community either. And he said the magic words, which are, I think I have a better idea. And he said, look, we're a card company. It's, you know, the the internet age. Maybe people won't send greeting cards anymore. We have a lot of innovation work to do. What about instead of putting our employees in this community, what if we brought our target consumers, moms, into this community and we picked their brains and understood their lives and their dreams and their frustrations and ask them questions and ask them to come up with new product ideas. And, you know, you know, you get the idea. And I, I did get the idea. I had done a lot of work helping companies understand their consumers. And I came back to our offices in Cambridge and said, okay, we're going to try something totally new. And- okay. Wait, before you get into this, cause I, I want to unpack like, cause the Chase Manhattan, like the first version of your product, like from what I gathered and in, in hearing this 
uh, on other podcasts is people were going like you would present people like loved at, it. like so you had like 200 hr people that this was getting rolled out to at chase manhattan yeah. that were like screaming like yeah like you presented this is what we're going to build collaborate and and people are going crazy right yeah so um, Chase had 200 hr human resources people all over the world they all came together we had sold this because they came together once every two years on wall street to get together and they'd share ideas and they'd listen to seminars and when they left uh for those of you who remember what work life was like then you would get a piece of paper with everybody's contact information. It would have their name and their phone number and sometimes their email address. We started adding email addresses and you stayed in touch with people that way because you had that document. So right. they brought me in at the end of this meeting and I said, look, you know that piece of paper? You're not gonna need it anymore. We're gonna put you in an online community called the Chase HR Network and you'll be able to be connected to each other all the time. You can ask each other questions. You can share experiences. You can send your favorite documents. You know, you can just get to know each other better and just be that much more powerful. People went crazy. We got a standing ovation. And I thought, oh my gosh, how gratifying is this to be building something where the users are so incredibly excited? Like they couldn't wait until we launched. You know, we hopped on the train, my head of product and our senior engineer were like high-fiving each other saying this is just going to be great. And um, yeah, basically we launched the community about two weeks later. And at the end of that first week out of the 200, eight had come into the community. And, you know, I thought jet lag. I mean, we just, we tried everything. I mean, we called them on the phone. Oh yeah, I love that thing. I'm going to totally come in. I mean, we just couldn't figure it out. We tried everything and um, people loved it, but we couldn't figure out how to wire it into their jobs in those days. They had a lot of their own networks. And even when we had somebody kind of facilitating the conversation, like calling somebody and saying, Keith, you should come into this community because somebody's asking about something that, you know, in compensation that you're really expert in. I mean, it just didn't happen. And there were articles in those days. The space was called knowledge management. There were articles that said, you know, if you could get 10 people to come in once a week, that would be really great. I thought that would be really dead. I thought that was awful. And um, when we tried this Hallmark thing um, in the first 24 hours out of the 200 moms that we had recruited into the community, almost all of them came in. Yeah. Um, and they were excited to be there. They could not believe they were going to be giving advice to Hallmark about how to move into the future. The client is reading everything. This guy named Tom Brailsford, he's like calling me three and four times a day. Did you see what that one said? Did you see what that one said? I've never heard this stuff before. So um, we, based on the fact that the first set of communities were pretty dead and this Hallmark thing was outrageously vibrant, we... I pulled six people off of their jobs. I gave them 45 days before the next board meeting to try to figure out what this is. Like, who buys this? Does anybody else do this? I mean, all the stuff you get in business planning 101. And in February of 2001, uh, we made a recommendation to the board to pivot the company and get into the consumer space. The board didn't really get what we were doing, but we came up uh, along with our client, we came up with this phrase called focus group on steroids. And I said that, and 
on the board, they just started laughing, like that my colleagues were saying, Diane, don't say that, don't relate it to focus groups, people hate focus groups, but whenever I said it to people, they got it, like, why put 10 people in a room with a one-way mirror for an hour when you could have hundreds of consumers kind of in a virtual room available to have conversations with you whenever and wherever you wanted and people got that and they were nodding their heads and um you know we did a pivot right into what ultimately was part of the market research space helping brands get insight and inspiration from their customers uh because of the magic of this new thing called the internet and now that space is probably a billion dollar space in market research but we were the first ones Everybody thought we were frauds. I mean, people thought it was crazy. All kinds of objections, right? These people aren't representative. Who are these people? No one's on the internet yet. How do you know that, you know, how do you know they're telling you the truth? I mean, we had a lot of work that we needed to do, but uh, we ultimately figured it out and it was just an absolute blast. Well, I think what's important there is like you uh, didn't fall into that trap of that false positive because you had this buyers and people celebrating what you're rolling out yet crickets when you actually rolled it out. So the use case didn't work out, but a lot of entrepreneurs probably just, Hey, we're selling this and we can just keep like, eventually some, someone's going to use it. Right. But no, you were smart enough to listen to a customer hallmark and pivot in a direction that was unknown and obviously use the same foundation of technology, I would assume, just make it consumer and, you know, obviously build a company. Yeah. You know, it's funny because we all give conflicting advice to entrepreneurs. I mean, sometimes I say to entrepreneurs, you better love what you're doing because mm -hmm. you're going to eat, sleep and breathe that. You're going to be talking about it 24-7. You're going to be raising money talking about it. I mean, you need to have passion for what you're doing. It's right. so critical or forget it. I mean, you have like the worst life because that's all there is. You know, on the other hand, you can't love it too much because what if it's not the thing? What if it's something else? And I have found, you know, most of my friends who become successful entrepreneurs, especially in tech, you know, have pivoted. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe they thought it was B2C and it became B2B. You know, maybe there was a little feature uh, of your product that ended up being the thing that people loved as opposed to the thing that you loved. So I think you got to hit that balance. You got to love what you're doing, but you've got to also love the possibility that it could morph into something else. Now you built a company and you had to weather some ups and downs, right? You had the internet bubble, 9-11, oh, yeah. you know, there's just lots of things that happen while building a business. So what were some of the biggest lessons learned while, while building the company? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, you know, we did, we, I mean, we had three, I always say to people, we had three or four years of just horror followed by, you know, 10 years of glory. You know, in the beginning we had two near death experiences, meaning we almost had no cash and we had a massive case of employee fraud. We had so many difficult things going on. We had September 11th, which kind of stopped industry. Um, and sometimes people will say to me, so what, what do you think is really critical as an entrepreneur? And I, I think I just didn't quit. I just didn't quit. I mean, I, I just, I, I wanted to do this so badly. 
that I just, you know, we tried everything and we held on. And I think even in terms of my investors, I think my investors were really not happy with our results in the beginning, but I think they knew that I would, they just believed that I would figure it out. Mm -hmm. So I think that really helped, you know, keep on the, over the long haul, I think in terms of scaling and the biggest lesson I learned, you know, I think you have to have a business model that really works. And then I think you need to set your company up so that that business model feeds into that. So for instance, here's how community space worked. For one community, um, let's say we were doing that Hallmark community. Eventually, um, we weren't just selling the software. We learned that if we layered in services, because clients didn't have time to run the communities. So people would say to us, okay, we have this software. Can you facilitate the community so that we don't have to have it? Or can you analyze the data that is coming through about consumers so that we don't have to do it? Or can you send people Amazon gift cards, you know, if they participate? Like everything that it took to make the community work was something clients didn't um, have the time for. And so we learned that instead of charging $5,000 a month for the software, we could charge $20,000 a month for the software with all of those other services layered in. So we figured that out. And that was the beginning of really growing, not just selling the software, but selling everything else in there. So think about it. Hallmark's got a mom's community. They're paying us $20,000 a month. So a one-year contract is $240,000. Okay. And everybody says, wow, this is a subscription model. This is really great. Here's the thing. If the client loves it, then they say, hmm. I would not only like a mom's community, I would like a millennials community, or I would like a creative craftspeople community, et cetera, et cetera. We just kept going, you know, or I would like a Latina community. So all of a sudden, instead of one, we had four communities. Maybe we gave them a little bit of a discount, right? But let's assume no discount yet. You had $80,000 a month instead of $20,000 a month because the client loves it and wants to learn about more consumers. And then if they feel like you're in a long-term relationship, instead of one year, all of a sudden they sign a three-year contract. Mm -hmm. So you get a contract from a happy client that is three or four communities for three years instead of a measly $240,000. And you tear that apart. And one of the ways that we scaled the business quickly was to figure that out, that a happy customer was kind of the center of our flywheel. Um, and the other part of it was, okay, so if we did business with small companies, that business model didn't work because a small company couldn't afford, they could barely afford 240,000 a year, no less 480, no less 720. So smaller companies would call us, I'd say we're oh, totally over-engineered for you. So we didn't get distracted by that. But big companies could not only afford $240,000 a year, but they could afford 2.4 million a year. And it was very often still 0.001% of their marketing budget. So then the question becomes, how do you make sure those customers are happy? How do you create so much competitive advantage that people love what you're doing and won't 
flip to, you know, what ultimately became a lot of competitors. So everything in our business was about making customers happy. And it wasn't because that's kind of a fun, moral, rallying cry that people put in their annual reports. It was because customer retention was at the center, the complete center of our ability to grow customer retention and expansion. And, you know, we got our first million dollar account and I'd look at everybody and say, let's run the numbers. Like, what does a $5 million account look like? Everybody's like, oh, Diane, you know, nothing's <laughs> ever good enough for you. And I was like, really? Like, we could probably do this. How many communities would we need? How many services would we need? How long would we have to sign a contract for? How many other people? You know, Hallmark's a large corporation. We didn't have to work just with one client. There are multiple divisions and everything. So we grew by building our product and our services and having people who just created such a great experience for clients that they talked about us, they were references, and they just couldn't get enough of us. I remember once I had a competitor, I saw him at a conference, and he said to me, you know, Diane, I just have to tell you, I tell my sales force, don't even call on community-based clients. And I said, you know, Andrew, why is that? And he goes, it's like a cult. <laughs> right? It's like it's a complete waste of time. They're just like madly in love with you. And, you know, we were in love with them. I mean, we just, I'm still in touch with tons and tons of clients, but that's what took us all of a sudden into, you know, what when we figured that out, our sales were like two and a half million, five and a half million, seven and a half million. And then all of a sudden it went to like 20.3. 45, 80, et cetera. I mean, it just kept going then. Not just because we had the business model, but because we had mastered what was at the core of scaling the business, which was getting clients to absolutely love the value of what they were getting from us. So now well, fast forward, like the, the company ended up getting acquired by Omnicon in 2011, I believe. Um yeah. so I'm always fascinated, like, like, how does that happen? Like, yeah. you know, are, like, is like a company just kind of like saying, hey, just want to like talk about some strategic conversations and partnerships <laughs> that lead down the path? Like, or is it like, hey, we're really interested, like, this is a missing piece of our business. And like, like, how does that conversation even like start? Yeah. Well, I, for a while, I thought we would do an IPO. And what happened was, um, I had another client, a guy named Stan Stanton-Athan, who was at Coca-Cola. He was the head of all consumer insights at Coca-Cola. And I thought they loved what we were doing for them. I mean, we were helping them understand the youth of the world. The stuff that was coming out of our community was miraculous. Um, actually, no, at the time, we were helping them understand the youth of America. So one night, I'm having dinner with Stan. I go down to Atlanta. I know they're really happy. I figure he's paying for dinner. And he says to me, Diane. I have some advice for you. You got to write this down. He said, so here's the thing. There's no one in the industry who can do what Communispace does as well as you guys do it. But here's the problem. There are other companies now getting into your business. And many of them are in like 93 countries. And just in case you hadn't noticed, Coca-Cola is in 93 countries and you guys are in like two. Mm -hmm. So you need to figure out how to be global fast because mm -hmm. your competitors are going to start coming to me saying, Stan, 
we're not as good as community spaces, but we can serve you all over the world. So maybe take somebody that's almost as good as you think they are, but who can operate and help you figure out how to run your business globally. And he said to me, look, if you decide you don't want to be global fast, we will still work for you. You will be the favorite tool we use in our Atlanta office, but don't mess this up. And I decided at that point that there was so much urgency to be, you know, I tested it with other people, obviously, but I decided there was so much urgency to be global that the best path to that would be to sell to a global company that really had it figured out. There are lots of details around um, why we needed to be acquired in order to be global, but it was mostly that we had become a technology-enabled services company so that we needed people in the countries who understood what a consumer would mean when they said, you know, I don't know, I love American Idol. Like, we know what that means in the United States, but we don't know what that means in Istanbul. Right. Um, so we needed people who lived in the various countries in order to scale. Um, and we also needed it in terms of business development. So um, we, I found an investment banker and he said to me, look, Diane, because we were, we were doing really well. So it's not like we had to sell. We had a lot of great brands. And he said to me, look, the characteristics of your business are great. You know, you're doubling in size every year. You have this, you know, you have this logo chart of companies that you work with that is outrageously impressive and your customer retention is really high. And I think you could really, really do well here. I think you could have your pick. And for me, it wasn't about the number necessarily, it was about would we have some control over who we sold to. So um, Peter, the investment banker, and I, he basically said, look, you're not quite ready yet. Let We don't have to kind of go out there and be desperate, but let's do some fireside chats. And so um, we went on the road and I met with, he just basically called up everybody who he knew in the industry who might be a potential acquirer. So he'd call you and say, Keith, I've got this company. They are absolutely crushing it. And the CEO and the leadership team are thinking about selling the company, but they're not sure. Um, but I think you should take a look at them and just hear their story. No obligation. And they're probably not ready to have a serious conversation. That's how he would set it up. And I went around and I met everybody. And I told the story and after every meeting, I would look at him and say, um, I love those people. Put them on the list, you know, <laughs> or that guy was, you know, what a jerk. Right. Right. I don't care what the guy would pay. I don't care how global they are. I don't want to be a part of that company. So it got us a lot of visibility, but it also gave me a chance to really think through where we might belong and what kind of company we might be a part of. So that's how it started. And then, you know, eventually, um, you know, we kind of put a book together. And when people got the book about us from our investment bankers, they already knew the company, they knew me, and we had about a dozen companies bidding on us. So it was great. And in the end, we didn't go for the highest bidder. We um, are both, you know, our, our venture investors were fantastic. And I kept saying to them, please, please, you're going to do so well on this deal don't abandon us. Don't leave us with a company, you know, that is not going to help us to thrive. So, um, yeah, we ultimately picked Omnicom and, uh, 
that was a great run. You know, they were, they not only helped us be global, but, you know, they helped us acquire a lot more capability. We bought a company in London, bought a company in China, et cetera. In fact, the company that we bought in London, the CEO of that company is the person who I ultimately picked to be my successor. So good stuff. Yeah. It's, it's great to hear an outcome like that, where, you know, there are lots of acquisitions that get sunset and wind down and don't quite work out, but uh, it just seemed like it was a perfect, and just I, like hearing your process that you ran, I don't know if I've ever heard that type of story, at least on this podcast. So I just think there's always question marks of entrepreneurs of like, like how, how do you run a process or like, does it just magically happen? So I think it's just helpful to hear how others have gone through it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I give credit to Peter Lombard, who was uh, at Piper Jaffray at the time. He's now Piper Sandler. I mean, he had this idea and it was fantastic for me. And I always say to people, you know, you're way, way better. If you're going to sell your company, you should sell it to somebody that already knows you well and, and do it at a time when you're not desperate. Because uh, again, I was in that process thinking, ah, you know, if I don't get the price I want from the company that I want, well, we'll try something else. You know, we'll figure it out. All right. All right. Well, your role these days, like you're, you've, you're an investor, right? But you're, uh, you sit on a lot of boards. It seems like mm -hmm. that's probably where you spend a lot of your time now. I do. Yeah. Um, you know, I loved being CEO. I did it at Communispace. I left, I CEO at Startup Institute. I, you know, did a bunch of things like that, but I, there were a couple of things that happened to me um, around 2016. One is um, uh, I was starting to realize how much I missed the market research industry. You know, market research sounds really geeky, but it's a great space because your product is so compelling. I mean, say to any CEO, I have some, you know, do you have 10 minutes? I have some really interesting information for you about your customers. You'll get the 10 minutes. Right. So I loved what a difference that made, especially in the boardroom and in the C-suite. And I was kind of missing it. That was in the back of my mind. But um, I got a phone call from a friend of mine back in that industry saying, you know, Diane, uh, he was a uh, head of strategy for the uh, Clinton campaign, 2016. And he said to me, I'm just wondering if I can pick your brain. We're trying to understand voters, especially right now, undecided voters in swing states. We have, we have, tons of data about what they believe and how they're going to vote, but we don't understand a lot about why. And I thought maybe you'd have some ideas. So I'm like, do I have ideas? Blah, 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 blah. And I, um, we ended up spending a couple hours on the phone and long story short, it was kind of one of those offers you couldn't refuse. I got an opportunity to help uh, do a project for the Clinton campaign to um, basically do what I just mentioned, help them understand undecided voters in swing states. And I had to leave my job in order to do that. So I gave my board about 60 days notice and moved from all of that time running companies and being with people and you know calling on customers and flying all over the place to sitting in my North End apartment, you know, calling voters in Michigan, trying to understand why they couldn't decide between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And again, same thing, right? Back to General Foods on Brim, understanding people who are different from me, and then building a company to help brands really understand their customers, and then kind of moving into this. I just loved doing that research, and um, uh, it was 
it was very inspiring to be part of that effort. It was also extremely frustrating. But at the end of the uh, campaign, when the election was over, I was going to take another CEO job. I was trying to decide between two different ones. And while I was in process and talking to people, I wrote an op-ed for the Boston Globe that basically said, here's what I've been doing with voters, and here's what I've learned, and here's what I think it means. And the op-ed went viral. Um, because Jake Tapper of CNN picked up on it and he couldn't stop talking about what I wrote about, which was basically that the turning point among my voters um, for Hillary Clinton was not Jim Comey talking about her emails. It was when she basically said that you could put half of Trump supporters into a basket of deplorables. People mm. went crazy and hated that comment. Anyway, I wrote all about that. The thing went viral and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm making more of a difference after the election than before. So I made a decision not to take either CEO job and instead to design my professional life so that I could take a chunk of it, like a third, and figure out how to do something with understanding the American voter. And then I started joining uh, some other boards, partially so the income could come in, but also so that I have stuff to do professionally. And I kind of created a portfolio life, which was spending about a third of my time uh, where I basically recruited 500 voters, this time not undecided, just all points along the political spectrum, every age, every ethnicity, every state. And I did a four and a half year longitudinal study of the American voter, ended up writing a column for the Globe and eventually a book. So that was about a third of my time. And then about a third of my time, I started doing a lot of angel investing. And then about a third of my time where I started picking up um, board work, which is now a massive amount of my time because I'm on more boards. And it's fun to have a portfolio life because you can continually optimize. You can, on a weekly basis, sit back and say, what do I love about what I'm doing? And, you know, what is not working? You know, do I need to get off of a board? Do I need to stop this project? Do I need to kind of change what my priorities are or whatever. So when you have a portfolio life, which is a great thing to do later in your career, you can do a lot of giving back, yet you can still kind of stay in the arena and make things better and better. Yeah, I mean, you're on the board of you know, Bright Cove, Eastern Bank, Panera Bread, I won't list them all, but like, how did someone get on the radar for board seats? Like, I'm sure there's people... I mean, it's it's obvious when you're a, a successful entrepreneur, CEO, and you have a, a great exit. But you know, what can you know if you're a chief operating officer or a chief product officer? You know, like how do you get on the visibility for board seats, and like how do we, you know, diversify the board seats too? Yeah. Well, look, you don't go from I didn't go from no boards to Panera. <laughs> I mean, I mean, so some of it is if, if, if you're not in a CEO or maybe like a chief financial officer position, because people love having CFOs on boards, they can run the audit committee. Mm. Um, it's good to just first, the first step is just dive in and get board experience. You know, there are three categories, nonprofits, private companies, public companies, right. you know, public companies are super time consuming. They pay you well, you know, you get stock, et cetera, private companies, pay you less, but very often if, you know, you can be in a big private company owned by a private equity firm that's getting ready to go public, which is fun. You can be on the board of a startup and be a, an independent director that has a lot of expertise there. You don't get paid as much there, but you get some equity and you get a chance to kind of jump in and really, really feel like you're helping the leadership team. 
And then of course there are nonprofits, which are full of inspiration, but what nonprofits want if you're on the board is they want you to write checks and they want you to get all your friends to write checks. Right. Um, so having experience in those makes a big difference. And I think you start learning, you start learning, um, do I like being on boards? Do I have the patience? Do I have the skill? Do I have the perspective? And kind of what's my lane, right? Why would somebody bring me onto a board? You know, I learned that my lane was really go-to-market strategy, that people bring me onto boards when they need help with marketing and sales and channels and consumer insight and all of that. It doesn't mean I can't read financial statements. It's just not what the big gap is when they say, gee, you know, that's the, that's the hole that Diane could fill. And then for me, everything else is networking. I never got a board seat from a headhunter. Um, I always had somebody pick up the phone and say, hi, we have this opening. What do you think? Um, or hi, you don't know me. I have this opening and your friend so-and-so said that I should talk to you or whatever. It's all just, you know, it's all just been about it's all just been about networking and um, yeah, go into the events, right? I mean, yeah. helping people out, you know, doing the mentor thing, judging the business plan competition, picking up the phone, saying yes, doing all of those things. Not because maybe someday that person will give you a board seat, just because as we used to say, that's what you do. If you want to build real value, you know, my Rolodex right now is way more valuable than my Harvard MBA. You know, I just feel like I have such great connections and I can be really helpful to people. And they can be helpful to me. And, you know, I've learned not only how to network, but, you know, my male friends have taught me how to network like men, right? You know, women get together and we go, oh, I love your outfit. Oh, I love your earrings. That's so great. How are the kids? Blah, 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 blah. You know, I've learned from my male friends, it's like guys get together and they go, hi, you know, my daughter needs a job next summer. Can you hire her? Right. Or I'm raising money for blah, 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 blah. I need you to give me a check for $10,000. I mean, they transact. And um, uh, I've learned how to do that also. I mean, to to really be able to leverage the relationships I have. And, you know, hopefully people feel like it's worth doing that with me. All right. So you uh, recently gave a commencement address at at Northeastern for one of the graduate, one of the schools. So, yeah. so what, what, what was the, that experience like? You know, I think giving a commencement address is, is absolutely terrifying. It's the third time I've done it and it doesn't get any easier. You know, the thing that's hard about it is um, you get like 10 minutes. I mean, everybody's there to get their diploma and have dinner with their parents and cheer their <laughs> friends. So right. you can say, you can give them words of wisdom, but I don't, I don't know if I have anything that I, you know, with all of the perspective that I have in life, I didn't know if I had anything that was so important to say that, you know, everybody was going to be at the edge of their seats. So how do you write something uh, in 10 minutes that you feel, you know, will maybe be memorable or whatever? And it's very hard to do. If they said take a half hour, half hour is easy. You go, here are my 10 lessons. Here are three right. stories. No, here are three stories five lessons, one joke, you know, mm -hmm. and one thing that you should never do or whatever. I mean, I, I think a half hour is pretty easy, but, you know, when they say eight to 10 minutes, that's tricky. You know, mm -hmm. having said that, um, 
I said yes all three times. And the reason is that it's just, it's um, it's really wonderful. Commencement is, you know, I'm, uh, commencement's like one of the great rituals. Um, you're there, everybody's got the gowns on and the caps on and the music is playing and people feel an enormous sense of accomplishment and it's emotional. So being, having the privilege of being a part of that is quite extraordinary. And sitting on the platform, you know, in Matthew's arena, you know, at Northeastern with so cool. 3,500 people and being able to just look at how everyone is relishing this moment is, you know, you just get caught up in it. And, you know, I just didn't want to miss that opportunity. You know, it's funny, Keith, I'm a, I was a trustee at Tufts uh, for 10 years and I've just moved over. I've become trustee emeritus because my term was up. But one of the greatest things about being a trustee, I mean, we, we do so much good work, but one of the great things is that every year it's commencement and you walk down with your fellow trustees and, you know, it's 2023. So everybody claps for you. Like in my day, we didn't clap for the trustees, but <laughs> you, know, you go down, you sit on the platform. And you look out at all of these students and their families. And I say, oh, holy shit, how did this happen? I mean, how did I go from, you know, how did I go from Norristown to this campus where it was so scary mm -hmm. um, to sitting up on this stage? I mean, it's so my being on that stage is such an unlikely thing. And being able to be in a position where you're reminded of that is, it's an extraordinary thing. So it's worth taking the risk that your eight minutes, you know, might not inspire everybody. Yeah, but you created every accomplishment. Like the, the theme I got from this conversation is you are... You're driven and you create opportunity, right? You finish Tufts in three years because you knew you could get that fourth year loan at an NBA program and only have one year of school to pay. You know, it's just like, then you knew you wanted to run a company that like everything, you were very driven and methodical and you created your own opportunities, whether it was networking and visible, because I'm sorry, visibility amongst the techs. So when I think of the Boston tech scene, you know, I, there's, a lot of people, but you're definitely one of the anchors of people that supported it, not only from building a great company, but helping others build great companies too. Oh, thank you. That really means a lot to me. I mean, here's what I'll, here's how I would say it. I think that not knowing what you want to do and not knowing what's next is an enormous, it's an enormous advantage if you can live with it not be paralyzed by the uncertainty. So if we go back to my brother, my brother was very clear about what he wanted to do. He became a surgeon and he was driven and went directly on that path for his entire life. And if somebody would say to him, gee, you know, have you thought about ever trying this? My brother would like, look at them like they're crazy. Like you gotta right, be yeah. kidding. I'm doing throat cancer. This is my life's work. For me, because I didn't know, and like for me now, I mean, I'm not retiring. I don't know what's next. I knew something would show up. And sometimes, even when I was doing what I loved, 
sometimes things would show up and I would look to the left or look to the right or say, wow, I wonder if I can fit that, that in. Or I wonder if maybe I ought to get off of this path and try something else. So I think it was more because I didn't know what was next. I had to set my life up so that serendipity would happen. So that things would come at me that might be really interesting opportunities. And it taught me to listen hard to those opportunities. It taught me, honestly, to go for stuff um, that I never got, right? I mean, I applied for a college president job and uh, about three years ago, actually right before COVID, and I didn't get it. And I was crushed. I mean, I literally was planning what I was going to do as president of that university. And, um, and I was a finalist, but I didn't get it. Um, or, um, I remember the first board I was ever on was Crabtree and Evelyn, which is the women's, you know, kind of like bath and body works and all that. I don't know if you know Crabtree and Evelyn, but at one point, and it was, um, owned by a friend of mine from business school. He called me one day from the Hong Kong airport. I had written another book. He goes, Diane, I'm in the Hong Kong airport and I've read your book, which was all about, uh, how you focus on your customers. And he says to me, I need you to be on my board. I just bought Crabtree and Evelyn for my wife. And I said, boy, <laughs> did you buy a store for your wife? Right. Goes, no, 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 no. I no, bought all the, whole the stores. <laughs> <laughs> and that was my first for-profit board. Mm -hmm. And um, I think I was a really valuable board manager. I loved doing it. I had every Crabtree. I mean, it was like all over my bathroom. I had all their products. And at one point, I thought I had a view of how we ought to grow the company. And I sat down with him and said, I think you want to make me CEO. And he didn't think that was a good idea, right? So I've had lots of those. You know, it's not like everything I did, every job I applied for, every opportunity I went for worked out. But I became unafraid of just giving it a try. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, so I'm grateful for never knowing and for always thinking and for learning at this point in my life to just trust that if I feel like there's not enough excitement or there's not enough risk or there's not enough learning or whatever else that something else will show up and I just need to put my taxi light on. Just, just, uh, it, don't don't be bashful, right? Don't be afraid and ask, right? Like you might get the hard answer that maybe you don't want, like, no, right. but if you don't ask, you don't know, and just put yourself out there and go for it. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, when I said I have to put myself in a position in which serendipity happens, I mean, here's the thing. How do you do that? Um, I always say to people, you've, you've got to say yes to things. You know, your friend says, you know, hmm. Keith Klein's doing this venture fizz event. Let's go. Right. I go, oh, you know, it's freezing outside. I'm sitting here with my blanket. I'm watching Game of Thrones reruns. Like, mm, I don't think so. Get yeah. dressed, put on your boots and go because you never know. You hmm. never know who's going to be there. Um, and so much of the time when you say to people, how did you end up where you are now? 
it was like that. It's like, well, I went to this venture fizz event one night. I sat on a plane and talked to somebody. I I went to this thing and I listened to a panel and it gave me an idea. A friend called, asked if I would help do this one thing and I got sucked in. I mean, it's just, that's how it happens. And that doesn't mean I don't spend my share of time, you know, binge watching something or whatever else. But, you know, serendipity is way more likely to happen, you know, if you if you put your boots on and I love, I love that. Yeah. I love that. Cause it's just, it's definitely something that my wife and I totally live by and we have two teenage girls and we, we we totally try to instill that, you know, it's all about putting yourself out there, like going to things, whether it's a sporting events, like the high school sports, you know, just, just being involved and you never know, right? Like take chances, take risks. And, um, you know, and networking. <laughs> so I mean, it's, it's yeah. just, you know, hopefully uh, giving them some, some good guidance, but definitely similar to what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. All right. So a good book podcast recommendation that, uh, that you would pass on <laughs> challenge. Other than your own, of course. Well, other than my, uh, yeah. Other than my own book. Um, well, you know, I mostly read fiction for okay. a while there. I was like doing all this nonfiction stuff. And then, you know, I just, um, I find that when I read fiction, I just get more engrossed. So the last book I read was Trust by Hernan Diaz, which actually is fiction and there's a lot of business in it, but it's a great book. And I think it just got a Pulitzer Prize. And before that, I read Lessons in Chemistry, which I think is on the bestseller list, which is also really great. Um, Podcasts, other than yours, well, the podcast that I've been listening to um, a lot, which is now about to end, is called "Is Still Watching." Um, it's a Vanity Fair podcast, and they looked at every episode of Succession. Ah, okay. uh, because whenever you watch an episode of Succession, you want to talk about it with people. These two guys are brilliant, and they're really funny. And um, you know, so I guess I w- I have one more episode where they're going to analyze what really happened in the finale. Um, mm-hmm. and the other podcast that I really that just cracks me up is smartless. Okay. So everyone talks about that. I'm like, all right, I got oh, it. You know what? Well, it, it's a podcast I hear about constantly yet. I, I need to dive in is my point where I haven't listened to it yet. Like I've listened to many podcasts that get recommended, but that's one where I love the people doing it. Like I absolutely yeah. love, I mean, they're amazing. Yeah. Uh, so I just, yeah, I how just, can you like, not love how can I, yeah, yeah, Sean yeah, Hayes, Jason Bateman, Will Arnett, Jason Bateman. Yeah. yeah. Totally. And these guys are friends from way back. Like we know them differently and everything, but they're just really funny. And, um, but they do, you know, the structure of their podcast is like the structure of yours. So in your podcast, maybe I don't want to listen every week because I don't want to hear what Diane Hessen has to say. I've heard her story a million times or whatever, but maybe I do want to hear Scott friend or whatever else. So you can pick which episodes by the person you're interested in and it doesn't really become obsolete. It's the same thing with smartless. You know, maybe I don't want to hear Paul Anka. You know, but maybe I do want to hear them interview like Joe Biden and it's fun when they interview Joe Biden cuz they don't talk about policy. They go like, "So what time do you go to bed at night?" <laughs> right? Yeah. Like does yeah. Jill go to bed at the same time? You know, you're in pretty good shape. Like do you work out? What's your routine? I mean, it's just it's right. 
<laughs> fun stuff. And they're not dumb questions. They're like, oh yeah, here are a whole bunch of things I never really knew before. So, but you can pick, you know, which people you're interested in. So there's a really hilarious one with Dana Carvey that I recommend. Okay. You know, yeah, he's hysterical. Yeah. Him he's, and yeah, one of the funny, especially if you're old enough to remember Dana Carvey on Saturday Night Live, just yeah, yeah. church lady. Yeah. Well, him yeah, and yeah. uh and David Spade have their own podcast interviewing Saturday Night Live, you know, yeah. actors that have run through and comedians. That's same type of thing where it's like I've I've burned through those because those two are funny and obviously they're interviewing, you know, Will Farrell and just amazing, amazing like just people. So it's just hysterical. So yeah. Yeah. Right, what do you right. like to do for fun outside of work? What do I do for fun outside of work? Uh, I see my daughters and my grandchildren. And of course, my husband. I'm lucky because um, our kids are all in Boston. Mm. Uh, they're all grown and they're all in Boston. So it's really great. I can see them pretty much whenever I want. And they don't have to come to my place and stay overnight because they live close by. Um what else? Hang with friends, play the piano, play golf, read, cook, take walks. You know, I do nice. a lot of different things. Yeah, awesome. I, I live in the South End in Boston. So, okay. you know, right now it's a really, really wonderful time of year to live in the city. I don't know why people go to the Cape when they can walk around, you know, walk on the Esplanade and do the Harbor Walk and, you know, go to Sowa and you know, go to the public gardens and everything during the summer. It's just a really wonderful time of year. That's awesome. Well, Diane, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story. Obviously all the great stories of building companies and obviously all the, the great advice along the way. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Keith. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.